So this is a tough one I want to ask you. Can you think of an example in Baker Hughes' experience where you've had to trade off one set of stakeholders' demands for another? Trade-offs are an everyday factor in running a company. And you're not going to get every trade-off right. The important thing is speed. What can be the worst outcome is a non-decision because then you are essentially standing still. Hello, and welcome to Tradeoffs, a podcast about how CEOs are changing their business models to succeed in a more sustainable future. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International. And the other voice you just heard was Lorenzo Simonelli, Chief Executive of the US oil field services company, Baker Hughes. Hydrocarbons, a dangerous addiction or a runway to a greener future? Baker Hughes straddles the debate. It provides traditional oil field services, but is also working at the forefront of clean energy. I had an in-depth conversation with Lorenzo Simonelli about his approach to the climate challenge, the pros and cons of natural gas at a time of political upheaval, and the trade-offs he faces while balancing energy security with emissions targets. You can hear that interview on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed. But today, I'm going over that discussion with two of Fidelity's investment team, analyst and portfolio manager Paul Gooden and portfolio manager Rosanna Bercheri. Welcome. Hello, Hello. Ned. Paul, you focus on U.S. energy companies. Can you give us a quick overview of Baker Hughes, the company, its main operations, and its position in the industry? Sure. So... There are really two halves to Baker Hughes. The first half is oilfield services and equipment, where Baker is the number three globally behind Schlumberger and uh, Halliburton. The second half is industrial and energy technology, which is a more diverse division, but the marquee asset is the manufacture of turbo machinery equipment that sits within so-called LNG trains. And these LNG trains convert... Um, natural gas into liquefied natural gas such that it can be transported around the world. And, and they've got the, the clear number one in that marketplace. Rosanna, you invest more broadly in the US with a focus on value. How do you appreciate the likes of Baker Hughes when it comes to your portfolio choices and inclusion? Um, it's an interesting asset, and there is a lot of value on uh, on, on the assets, really the physical assets of uh, of, of the company, being a manufacturer and being uh, being in the US and uh, and across uh, across the globe. What is interesting also for me as a, as a value investor is the is the value of of the brand at the DNA at the heart of this company that was merged in, uh, in uh, 1987 from two companies that have been present in the U.S. in terms of engineering knowledge for over 100 years. So there is a lot of innovation and IP that is uh, inside, uh, inside the brand of, uh, of the company. Let's hear a clip, and it's about the future of these two quite different sides of the company that both Paul and Rosanna mentioned in their comments. If you think about your business over the course of the next five years and the next 10 years, is there a serious trade-off to be made about diminishing the traditional oil and gas business, services business? Should you or should you not just shut down the old traditional, quote-unquote, dirty parts of the business to focus on the good bits? You shouldn't. And if you look at the demand growth that's happening from an energy perspective, 
and you look at the requirement, the biggest change of going from poverty to middle class to developed nations has been the abundance of energy. Hydrocarbons play a role in that abundance. And it's important that we lose focus of the benefits that we've received from oil and gas. At the same time, we need to continue to reduce the carbon footprint. And there's ways you can do that by minimizing flaring, by upgrading equipment so that there's no leakage, by doing a series of investments from a digital perspective to drive optimization. And that's what the focus has to be now, because there is a supply-constrained world when you look at the demand outlook. And we need hydrocarbons in the coming decade to continue to play a role as we feed the world with the energy it needs. Paul, Mr. Simonelli talks confidently about the necessity of traditional energy sources. But I, is there a question about the longevity here? Yeah, so we're going through an energy transition and peak fossil fuel demand is out there at some point. Um, but we need to face up to some home truths. So today, 80% of primary energy supply comes from fossil fuels. 20% comes from nuclear and renewables. And we haven't even hit peak coal yet. And, and coal is you know, the most dangerous of the um, fossil fuels in terms of emissions. So it's going to take quite some time. Now, the, the IEA put out a report about a month ago and under their stated policies scenario, they think peak oil demand is in the mid-2030s. Now, I think we can um, you know, do it a little bit faster than that. So probably early 2030s for peak oil uh, and probably peak gas, you know, at least a decade behind that. So how do you think about Baker Hughes's capital allocation in, in that context then? At what point is Mr. Simonelli or his successor going to have to say, now is no longer the time to be allocating capital into the traditional oil field services businesses. Look, I think they'll be led by the market. Um, firstly, led by the commodity market um, in terms of that gives us a real-time indicator of, of the demand of those products. So at some point, you know, a long way in the future, I think, um, as you go into sort of accelerated decline of uh, oil demand, you know, that's going to have implications for the oil price. So they're going to respond to the signals from the commodity markets. Um, and I suspect they're also going to respond to signals from the equity markets. You know, something we'll no doubt come to is there's a potential for Baker Hughes to separate these two businesses. And so if they find that you know, their faster growing business um, is not getting the, the kind of the credit in the overall company's multiple, uh, then they might make the decision to look at the corporate structure. Rosanna, how do you consider the risk or, or is it a trade-off between investing in old versus new industries? Yes, it is a trade-off and, and it is a risk. And, you know, personally, when, when you are an investor, you have to sort of going back to the point that you were making in terms of the longevity, how long these things is going gonna, is gonna to stay around. Uh, recently, difficulties standing in front of uh, the numbers of an oil company say, OK, how long are they going to be around? I, I needed to be able as an investor to put a, to put a value on the asset. And that's why... And in the strategy, we have stayed away of investing directly in these in this oil in this oil company. 
um, the valuation is attractive. Uh, they are throwing a lot of cash, but you, you can see, going back to the point of Paul, how the equity market is pushing them of uh, not reinvesting in the assets because probably there is not anymore this uh, terminal value and instead giving back all the all this cash to uh, to, to shareholders. For Baker Euro, it's is, is different. You know, at the end, it's, a, it's an engineering company and they have, uh, you know, they're standing with their feet in the, in the two area. Um, but at the end, uh, uh, their DNA is their capacity, their engineers, you know, they know how to deal with fluid gas and they can apply this knowledge to all hydrocarbon, like to new technology. So it's in, it's anyway easier also for an investor looking at this company, even, even though they are standing uh, with the feet in these uh, two different uh, end market, because they can easily transfer the knowledge from one to the other and still be at the, at the forefront of the technological change. Uh, here's Mr. Simonelli again. This time he's going to comment on the advantages of the Baker Hughes liquefied natural gas business that's just come up in our conversation. So the benefit is, again, from a transportation capability, a competitiveness standpoint, natural gas is one of the key ways in which you can move away from using coal. And it is a friendlier fossil fuel. And I think as you look at both the United States and Europe, the benefit they've had in reducing their carbon emissions over the course of the last few decades has been the natural shift from coal to using natural gas. And we see it as a key theme that's going to continue. And the growth outlook for LNG globally is very positive. What's the carbon tailwind, natural gas over coal, in terms that, that would make sense to, uh, to our listeners? I don't want to put a measurement on it. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is it's significant. And in fact, as you look at the studies, uh, coal is uh, by far the worst of the hydrocarbons from an emission perspective, and natural gas is the lowest. And does that include all of the transportation along the way for, for, for liquefied natural gas? Yes, it does, because again, the transportation would be there for coal as well. So short term, it sounds to me like having the LNG capability is great, in particular because we're in the midst of a, I guess, of an energy crisis. But I guess bringing gas from the U.S. to a destination around the world does feel like a carbon intensive process. And so how do you square off that trade off? So I think you have to go back to the energy crisis that we're facing at the moment. It's really uh, a trilemma. There's the element of affordability sustainability, and security. And as you look at natural gas, natural gas is an abundant resource. It can be liquefied and transported and from an emission standpoint is actually the less impactful from an environmental standpoint. So I think when you look at it, it's actually a natural winner from a transition perspective as well as a destination fuel in the end. And that will over time actually be seen. Today, you've still got a lot of final investment decisions that need to be made, and you're seeing an increase in usage of coal. As those final investment decisions are made, you'll again see coal reduce and natural gas continue to increase. Paul, let's unpack the debate about the carbon tailwind of LNG and whether it makes sense to be transporting the stuff halfway around the world. Uh, two questions for you. The first question, when I asked Mr. Simonelli to quantify the benefit of LNG versus coal, he said he didn't want to put a measurement on it. So how would you quantify it? 
And my second question, what's your opinion? Should we be transporting natural gas over such long distances? So the rule of thumb is that coal has around twice the carbon emissions intensity of gas and oil is about midway between the two. And when you liquefy and transport natural gas as LNG, um, you increase its emissions intensity by about 20%. So you're still getting quite a significant saving if you swap out coal for LNG, emission saving of about 35%. Um, and, and with gas, you know, it does matter where it comes from. So for example, um, if you're piping gas from Russia, um, there's a big problem with fugitive emissions of methane from equipment and pipes. And, and methane is far worse than CO2 in terms of the global warming impact. And I've seen reports suggesting that pipeline gas into China from Russia has got higher emissions intensity um, than, than just using coal. So I think LNG is a pragmatic transition fuel in the energy transition. And so, so yes, you know, I think it absolutely makes sense to, to, to move LNG um, uh, internationally, particularly given that you know, natural gas itself is quite a regional commodity. So you know, the, the natural gas price in Europe is about 10x what it is in the US. So there's quite a big economic saving as well. Um, by bringing it over as well as the carbon savings. You refer to LNG as a transition fuel, which takes us nicely to the next clip, because Mr. Simonelli says natural gas is both a winner from a transition perspective, but also as a destination fuel, meaning that for him, it isn't just here for the short term. He sees it as a permanent contributor to the power mix. If you look at it from a standpoint of the role it can play, you can start to work towards also cleaning natural gas and net zero cargoes of LNG. I think as you look at the demands of energy, you've also got to be pragmatic. You won't be able to fill the world with renewable solar panels or wind farms. You need natural gas to be there as a provider of consistent and also continuous energy. And with some of the other sources, you still have intermittency issues. And so until those get solved, natural gas and the role of LNG is here for a long time as bridging that and also being a destination fuel, especially as you look at some of the countries that don't have natural resources, uh, don't have the sun, don't have the wind. Uh, they're going to need to power, and it's better to power through natural gas and LNG than it is burning coal or burning diesel or kerosene which are some of the other forms that have been used in the past to provide them energy. Rosanna, what do you make of his comments here? 100% agree. I think we need to be, uh, to be pragmatic. And, you know, the U.S. economy is quite pragmatic in the way they look, uh, they look at energy. Um, 32% of, uh, of the electricity consumption in the U.S. has been sourced from, from natural gas. I mean, they have the beauty of having abundance. And going back to the point of Paul, uh, the, the price are, are, uh, are low. And Mr. Simonelli is correct. You know, it's, it's okay to keep on investing in, in renewable. In the U.S., for example, it's just 12% of the energy now that comes out of renewable but look at the U.S., the sun is shining in the south, the wind is blowing in the north, but, you know, people in the middle need 
heating and need, uh, need electricity. So you need to be pragmatic. And uh, there is abundance of uh, this resource in the US and it's, it's, uh, it's correct to use it. I mean, intermittency problem for renewable energy, I'm sure they will get uh, resolved along the way, but it's, uh, it's a pragmatic approach to, to keep on investing in and in using natural gas today. Paul, his point about LNG smoothing the intermittency that renewable energy suffers from um, and it being cleaner than other hydrocarbons, are, are these reasonable trade-offs for the emission natural gas produces or are we just seeking excuses? Well, I think it's, it's about being pragmatic rather than puritanical. So if you look at energy from fossil fuels, it breaks down about a third each between coal, gas and oil. Um, but given the emissions intensity of coal, coal accounts for nearly half of the carbon emissions of all fossil fuels. And you know, in the OECD, in the West, yes, we have aggressive um, targets in terms of greening our economies, but around 70% of coal combustion happens in Asia. And so you know, we need to sort of convince Asian economies either to pivot directly to renewables or to sort of more pragmatically kind of swap out coal for natural gas and on these sort of intermittency points on um, on, on renewables, other than hydro, of course, which doesn't have that. Um, yes, it is an issue, and I'm, I'm sure over time there will be improvements in battery technology which can help solve it. Um, perhaps green hydrogen can solve it as well. Um, but until that is achieved, then yeah, I think natural gas does have an important role to play in terms of providing baseload uh, power. Mr. Simonelli talked of cleaning natural gas and making LNG cargoes net zero. What does he mean by that? Are companies like Baker Hughes within the current LNG ecosystem working hard to make it greener over time? Yes. Yeah, so I think what he's referring to is last year, Chenier, who are the biggest um, US LNG exporter, exported a cargo of LNG to a customer, which was Shell. Um, and both Chenier and Shell invested in nature-based offsets, uh, I'm guessing planting trees. And as a result, that cargo was net zero, sort of scope one, two, and three, and including the carbon from combustion. So look, on, on one hand, it's a proof of concept. It can be done. On the other hand, it's a bit of a gimmick. Can you bring to life this concept that LNG can be a destination fuel? I mean, I have it in my mind that anything that's a scarce resource, calling it a perpetual destination or a destination into perpetuity is kind of questionable. Um, I, I understand that there is an abundance of natural gas, but it won't last forever. Yeah. So look, in terms of calling it a destination fuel, it kind of depends on your time frame, right? So I think, you know, on a, on a 50 to 100 year view, um, I don't think it's right to call natural gas a destination fuel, but I think it is. it has got a very important role to play in the energy transition. And I think there are you know, many decades of growth um, of, of, of natural gas production out there. Um, in terms of the reserves out there, yes, there is a lot. So to put it in perspective, the US produces about 100 BCF a day of natural gas. Can you clarify BCF for us? Oh yeah, billion cubic feet, and you know the the EIA reckons at that pace of production, there's about a hundred years of reserves in the US, and and in terms of what could be exported as LNG, today the US exports about eleven BCF a day, so ten eleven percent of its production is exported, 
And I think by the end of the decade, we're kind of nailed on to more than double that, to about 25 BCF a day. And, and beyond that, yes, it could increase as well. So look, um, yeah, it depends on your, your, your time horizon. Coming back to this question, Rosanna, of terminal value, you know, is the abundance question, I guess, relevant for you in your investment thinking as you put the investment case together or buy and sell securities in the portfolio? No, it is, uh, you're correct. It is, it is important. Um, but you see, for, for natural gas, I, I mean, it's interesting, you know, there is, a, in a certain way, there, there is a quite an abundance. And what is interesting and why it's, uh, for me, it's easier also to put a terminal value into it is that for the moment it is trapped. We have it a lot in, in the US, we have uh, in Qatar, then Russia and Iran. Like uh, Mr. Simonelli was mentioning, it's the problem also of the geopolitics and the security. Who do you want to be dependent dependent from? It's not that you have a, a great choice, uh, but it's not only that in terms of the abundance. It's the problem is that it's not easily uh, liquefied. You know, you need infrastructure. Uh, what does it mean? You need to get land permit uh, clearance uh, with all uh, the the local uh, constituencies uh, that are uh, that are involved, uh, and then it takes uh, another. So probably that will take another, you know, three, four, three to five years, and then it's probably going to take you another ten to fifteen years uh, before building. So there is abundance of it. It is uh, trapped uh, geologically in certain part of the world, while everybody needs it. As Paul was saying, uh, it's. Uh, probably the best base load energy that you can uh, that uh, that you can have everyone's made a very compelling case today that LNG um, is a is a technology that has carbon tailwind uh, compared to other other technologies we have available to us but necessity is the mother of invention and what about the argument that if we were stricter on legacy fuels uh, there'd be more investment available to develop better more reliable, green energy technology, uh, for example, the battery tech. What's your view on that, Rosanna? Well, the thing is that uh, it's something that has been going on now for, for a while and a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of money has been thrown to these, uh, to these new technologies. So personally, as a value investor, I, I cannot see the value in there. And on top of it, we have had uh, government sort of uh, putting in place uh, incentives. Uh, and as an investor, I prefer animal spirited works like Baker Hughes, a sort of uh, finding uh, finding your way instead of uh, channel my investment towards something that uh, you know is helped by subsidy. And, and you know we are not yet sure if it can stand on its own uh, his own feet. So, Paul, let's hear your perspective on this. I mean, should we be harsher in the regulatory environment to try to? divert capital from one technology to the other. Capital is arguably scarce, and notwithstanding Rosanna's point that there has been a lot of investment into green tech, we know that there's still a funding gap to achieve net zero. Uh, should, we be, should we be stricter here? Yeah, look, with, with oil and gas, um, I think it's a, a mistake to focus too much on supply. You really need to focus on demand, because if you focus on supply, and you don't focus on demand, you're just going to force up commodity prices. And, you know, we're already in an energy crisis. And so I don't think people are going to thank you for that. So I think on oil and gas, focus more on, on the demand side. So in the US, for example, there are now larger credits for buying EVs. Um, on the, the, the sort of the clean energy side of things, um, there I think government regulation can play a bigger role. So again, in the US, um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, there are now very generous subsidies um, for, for solar, for wind, for hydrogen, for carbon capture. 
So that's, that's how I think uh, we should approach it. Let's hear more detail on the future technology that Mr. Simonelli is investing in. There are integrated compressor lines that have no leaks. There is uh, Flare IQ, which reduces the flaring of uh, methane. Then I'm very excited about the opportunity to drive continued optimization and efficiencies through data and the digital platform. It's making our equipment have increased uptime, reduced downtime, which means ultimately the footprint from a greenhouse gases is going to be better. And then you look forward and you think about the exciting developments that are happening on hydrogen. With the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, they've essentially made green hydrogen competitive with the 3 to $4 per kilogram subsidy that they've uh, implemented. And I think we are seeing now the real undertakings of a hydrogen economy being developed over time. But I'm also just as interested in CCUS. CCUS is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And I'm interested also from a circular economy standpoint, because ultimately CO2 is going to need to be used. And so the ability to take CO2 and make something from it. And there's interesting technologies that we've been investigating and we've been uh, making small investments in to be able to produce carbon black, to be able to look at ways to get to graphite. And these, to me, are exciting future trends because the circular economy is the key way in which we can continue to reduce greenhouse gases and also eliminate them going forward. So we've heard a long list of interesting technologies here today, digital platforms, hydrogen, carbon capture, uh, utilization and storage. Uh, Paul, what do you think holds the most promise here? What should we be holding out hope for? Yeah, so you know, digital platforms are already here. They're already real. Baker Hughes don't break it out, but one of their competitors, Schlumberger, does. Um, their digital division, it's very high margin. It's about a third of their operating profit. And so it's, it's, it's used across traditional oil and gas and clean energy. So digital is, is, is real and big today. In terms of carbon capture and, and hydrogen, yeah, I'm excited. I think both of them have lots of growth ahead. Um, carbon capture in particular, I think, is going to be part of the solution. And as Lorenzo mentioned, very generous tax credits in the US. Hydrogen, I mean, the way I think about hydrogen is it's really a way of storing that kind of intermittent sun and wind um, electricity and, and putting, putting it in a vector that means it can be used whenever you want it. And it means that you can you know, use it in different use cases. You could put it in a bus, for example, but ultimately all generated from, from solar. Um, so I think hydrogen's got a big role to play, but um, you know, it's probably going to be restricted to a certain number of relatively niche um, end uses, I think. So as someone who's in the business of trying to find, attract, and retain good talent, I have had a thought about, you know, do, do these energy companies have the talent needed to carry this through? You know, is it possible for Baker Hughes to attract and retain the best engineers, or are they going elsewhere? Yeah, look, it's a great question. So the factoid I recently heard is that in the US, the number of petroleum engineers graduating has fallen by 85% over the last five years. So you know, smart scientific minds increasingly don't want to go into oil and gas. And, and this speaks to the kind of the, the big picture thesis that supply is peaking before, 
for full demand. I, you're getting fewer people going in traditional, into traditional oil and gas. You're getting less equipment and services available to the oil and gas industry. Um, so, so I think there's definitely a challenge there and a mismatch in terms of you know peak supply and then peak demand being in the early 2030s. For for clean energy, um, look, it's, it's difficult to say, but you know anecdotally, I, I know of plenty of people who want to get into that space. Um, so. I don't think they're going to have a problem attracting people into that. I think the trick will be trying to retask some of their existing engineers and, and then moving them over. Rosanna, investments like the technological investments we've just been talking about might not pay off for years down the line. And that may present challenging conversations with shareholders or with, with other stakeholders. In, in your opinion and from your experience, what's been going on in the boardroom of companies like Baker Hughes? Um there's been a lot of pressure, and I think a lot of a lot of conversation and discussion has has been going on. But you know, the the feedback that we have is that he has been already incorporated. You know, board and and companies understand that they have to satisfy the different kind of uh, of shareholder. A lot of uh, a lot of them keep in mind the people, profit, and uh, and the planet. Um, and I think it's, there has been a quite a grown-up approach. Uh, at the end, you need to evaluate uh, the, the decision that you're making in terms of capital investment, your capital that you put at work for the next uh, five to 10 years. Uh, it takes into account all these uh, ES uh, risk. And, I mean, in this case, we're talking about uh, e, e risk. Uh, has to be part of the assessment uh, of the risk of this investment that the board uh, is, uh, is, uh, is making. It's really incorporated in, uh, in the discussion. And uh, yes, you know, as a shareholder, we try to put always on top of the agenda that they have to think, uh, think about. Uh, but it's also you, you see in the way equity markets are, are valuing and, uh, and remunerating in a certain way grown-up approach that uh, board and companies are taking in terms of long-term investment. So this is a tough one I want to ask you, but obviously sometimes the views of stakeholders can be perceived at the odds of one another. Can you think of an example in Baker Hughes' experience where you've had to trade off sort of one set of stakeholders' demands for another? Trade-offs are an everyday factor in running a company, and you're not going to get every trade-off right. But you've always got to uh, make a judgment call and be decisive in making those trade-offs. I think uh, as you look at uh, trade-offs in capital allocation, there's a lot of technologies out there. Which one are you going to bet on? And you go with the best information you have at the time. The important thing is speed. And I think uh, as uh, many CEOs know, what can be the worst outcome is a non-decision because then you are essentially standing still. And with change being a constant, you've got to move forward and make the best decisions at the time. Paul, the ability of these energy companies to invest to some extent depends on good market conditions insofar as their cash generating capability requires good good market conditions to operate. So it's important that we understand what the outlook for the businesses like Baker Hughes is and, and where are we today? Sure. So if we take the two sides of the business separately, so firstly, oilfield services, it's a notoriously cyclical industry. Um, on top of that cyclicality, you've had a lot of pressure um, the last five or six years from investors um, saying to upstream oil and gas companies, don't invest, don't invest, don't invest. And so you've had a, a big decline in the amount of oil and gas industry capex. So the amount of capex last year, 2022, was about 
40% below where it was in the 2014 peak. So it's quite depressed. Um, I think in 23, you'll see global oil and gas industry capex grow about 20%. So you're seeing a nice cyclical uptick in, in that oilfield services business. Looking at the other half of the business, the LNG business, there it is less cyclical. It's more about structural growth. So if you look at global industry installed capacity of LNG, I think over the course of this decade, it'll roughly double. Um, the Russia-Ukraine war has seen energy security become an existential threat to companies and nations all over the world. And I was interested to hear from Mr. Simonelli to what extent that had put the brakes on our transition ambitions. How has your business changed in light of the current geopolitical environment? And what's your interpretation of what that means for the energy transition roadmap? I mean, everyone's talking about net zero. Is it over? Um, are we going to have to give up on our targets because we need to protect energy security? What happens next? It's definitely not over. And what we've seen now is a heightened interest and discussion around security. At the same time, the trilemma that we're facing around affordability and sustainability with security is unchanged. And so over the course of the next few years, you're actually going to see a ramp up in the investments, as you've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act within the United States, as you've seen within Europe, some of the policies that are being introduced, Australia, other locations that continue to promote the move towards lower carbon intensive energy mix. And I actually think even though short term, you may see an increased use of coal or an increased use of hydrocarbons, over the long term, you're going to see an acceleration of the deployment of capital also towards a new energy mix where hydrogen is going to be accelerated. You've got the opportunity of uh, expanded CCUS and the circular economy. So it's um, short term, medium term and long term view but sustainability is definitely not off the table. So that's good news for sustainability enthusiasts. Rosanna, Mr. Simonelli was confident that when it comes to the trade-off between energy security and sustainability, and despite all that's happened geopolitically over the course of the last year, net zero remains high on the agenda of business leaders. Does that tally with what you're hearing? Yes, in a certain way, the geopolitics and what is happening with Ukraine has uh, put uh, again on, on top of the mind the problem of, uh, of, of the security. But, you know, the, the trend towards sustainability and then the zero uh, is, is in motion. And in a certain way, it may be also accelerating. I mean, we are seeing even regulator now putting, putting in place the rules in terms of, uh, on terms of disclosure. So it's a, it's a conversation that the board level and the management uh, uh, needs to have with all, uh, all the stakeholders of, uh, of the company. And look at what, you know, Paul was mentioning before, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, there is nothing... Uh, about inflation, I mean, in reality, it's it's really push to accelerate the the sustainability agenda with in mind the geopolitics and the fact that the U.S. has to be even more self-sufficient in terms of whatever kind of source of energy you're 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 thinking about, and in a certain way, is with this in 
in mind on the fact that uh, there is abundance for the, for the moment, maybe in 100, 150 years, we're not going to have any more abundance of uh, hydrocarbons or, and natural gas. And so we need to invest today and invest in the U.S. towards this new technology and new kind of, uh, new kind of energy. Paul, do you think that holds true with the energy companies specifically? Does the energy security debate you know, diminish the sustainability debate over the very near term? So I would say you know, the, European, the European majors are kind of leading here. So they've all set net zero targets for scope one, two, and three. It's a long way out, but they set the targets. Um, the US majors have set just scope one, two targets. They're not addressing scope three. They're kind of sort of saying, look, that, that's not our problem to address. It's for broader society to address. But with the Inflation Reduction Act, what you've definitely noticed in the last six months is a growing appetite of the big US majors to spend more capex on clean energy. So for example, this year, Chevron's spending about 15% of its capex on clean energy projects. And Exxon just gave a five-year look forward on their capex. And by 27, 20% of their CapEx is going on clean energy, and they they both seem more open to making acquisitions in the space as well. So, so no, I would I would say that you know there is still um, you know big appetite to to make the transition, but certainly it's helped by these very attractive tax credits in, in the U.S. We couldn't have this conversation without considering the trade offs related to Baker Hughes's carbon footprint, because in order to operate in order to responsibly guide the industry to a cleaner future and make headway for these more efficient and greener technologies, the company will have its own emissions. That includes scope one and two related to its business operations, but also, and this is an area still being argued over, scope three, which are the emissions related to its entire value chain. And in the case of Baker Hughes, that's some pretty hefty fossil fuel companies. If you're the chief executive of a car company, it would be quite clear, like you have clarity on your scope one and scope two emissions. Um, but you would worry about the scope three emissions. You would worry about the cars on the road, which I guess is their equivalent of scope three. And you may say, drive less. You may work with regulators to, you know, maybe increase some, uh, you know, tax burden of driving into central London, for example. How could Baker Hughes, if, if asked, interact with those customers to try to get them to help them reduce their scope three admission emissions? What kinds of things might you need to do? Well, we have those discussions already because a number of our uh, customers, we have joint MOUs on how we approach uh, decarbonization, reduction of greenhouse gases. MOU, a memorandum of understanding. Yes. And it's being open to new technology. It's being open to advances that are being made. Also operating uh, nature and parameters of the equipment that they're using. And it goes holistically through a lot of different elements. To your point, though, it's important that it is a discussion and that we're working collectively together across all the stakeholders. It's not just as simple as it's the driver of the car and it's their problem. Rosanna, Baker Hughes have a pathway to a 50% reduction in their scope one and scope two emissions by 2030. But as Mr. Simonelli uh, lays it out there in the clip that we just listened to, scope three is a lot more complicated. How do you wrestle with the scope three question as a portfolio manager? First of all, uh, 
it is necessary to have also the, the scope, uh, scope of three target because, you know, we have to be honest. We cannot get to net, net zero. Uh, the ambition to get there needs uh, to be clear on scope one, scope two, scope three, and how, how to reduce. Now, I acknowledge as, as an investor that while for scope one and scope two, the, the rules of the game are, are much clearer. For scope three, we are, we are entering a, a little bit a very unclear, unclear zone. Uh, first, is not clear the, the perimeter where we wanna, what we wanna really measure, uh, who, who really owns uh, the liability in a certain way. Uh, the data is not consistent across across uh, across uh, sector. Uh, the data sometimes is not is not uh, even there. So, as an investor, it's um, it's comforting hearing that there, there are this discussion with all the stakeholder and 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 the board and the management is thinking about uh, about the value chain. But I'm ready as an investor to give them the time to get on with the dis discussion, to have a, to have a, maybe a more precise menu uh, to use. Uh, but of course, it's also my my job as an investor to keep on pressure them uh, to try to get there. Uh, and I think also, you know, the pressure that, for example, we are we are putting on a lot of company or U.S. company to come out with a science-based target, you know, scope three is a little bit a part of part of the menu. So it, it's a way to, uh, to sort of incentivize them to get on with this discussion. So is it safe to say from your perspective that within this scope one, scope two, and scope three, they're all important, but that we need to be uh, more pragmatic in scope three as we learn to think about what the perimeter is and how we management over to manage it over time, and that living with that uncertainty is okay for now? Yes, I think it's, uh, it's, it's okay. We, we need to be pragmatic and we need to, to give companies times. Paul, what are the big trade-offs for Baker Hughes when it comes to reducing emissions across the board? Well, look, I mean, one, one trade-off is, is really about carbon accounting. And, and they need to think about, um, in fact, the whole industry needs to think about the definition of scope three. So as Lorenzo kind of alluded to there, their definition of scope three is when their customers use their equipment and consume oil and gas to get that equipment to work, um, that is Baker Hughes' scope three. And they are excluding entirely from all their numbers the emissions that take place at the part of combustion. And, and that's standard practice in the industry. Schlumberger do exactly the same thing as well. But intuitively, we as investors and consumers will kind of think, oh, scope three, that's like me driving my car. Um, but, but it's not. Now, there are, there are actually quite good reasons that Baker Hughes and others do that. And that is that when their equipment is working on a well, for example, they don't necessarily know what's going to get produced? Is it oil? Is it gas? They don't know how much is going to get produced. They don't know how that oil and gas is going to be used. Is it going to be using chemicals to make plastics or is it going to be used in paragen or in, um, in, in transportation? So I think there are, there are good reasons why they set the scope three definition or boundary where it is. Um, but, you know, clearly there are trade-offs there in terms of, you know, consents, you know, because consensibly it kind of seems that you should take account of you know, the emissions at the point of combustion, which is, you know, far bigger than the scope three numbers that all these companies are kind of um, disclosing. And so where does the accounting come into the picture for that? Well, the, 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 the uh, so I'm talking about carbon accounting in terms of, it's just a question of, you know, what is the policy? Where do you set the boundary? Because if they included um, emissions at the point of combustion for the end consumer, it would be an order of magnitude higher than 
even the scope three numbers they're talking about now. But as I said, I think I think there are quite good reasons why they set the boundary where it is. But we as investors and um, commentators need to be aware about that carbon accounting because you know the the upstream company takes account of that. That's that's the upstream company scope three. So, not all energy companies are the same, and we've learned that not all hydrocarbons are created equal. Achievement of a greener future will require a pragmatic approach, allowing society to function, all the while investing in innovative new technologies. Thank you to my guests Paul Gooden and Rosanna Bercheri, and thank you, of course, to Lorenzo Simonelli. You can hear my full interview with him on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed, or check for a link in the show notes. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark, with technical support from Callum Blitz and Pete Rees. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.